Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. My name is Dr. David Chow. I direct the Center for Asian American Christianity. Thanks for coming out on a surprisingly cold, snowy day in late March. It is my privileged and, and joy to introduce Dr. Helen Jin Kim for, as this evening's Asian American Theology and Ministry Colloquium speaker. Dr. Helen Jin Kim studies US history and religion with a focus on the Pacific and Asian America. She is author of Race for Revival, How Cold War South Korea Shaped the American Evangelical Empire. Helen, did this book come out yet? Yeah, so I was gonna mention it. Um, it's now out, the Kindle version is out. Hey. <laughs> um, and the hardback comes out April 12th. April 12th, got it. Uh, which is exciting. And then um, my editor at Oxford University Press just said that it's going under a second printing. So the second printing will be out in May. So I, yeah, it's, very, it's a very exciting time. <laughs> excellent, excellent. We're going to hear more yeah, about yeah. the book. I'm going to continue the introduction. And Dr. Kim is co-author of Family Sacrifices, The Worldviews and Ethics of Chinese Americans with Russell Jung and Sinan Fong. Kim's research has been supported by the Louisville Institute, National Endowment for the Humanities, Forum for Theological Exploration, and Harvard University's Korea Institute, Charles Warren Center for American History, and Center for American Political Studies. In 2020, she was awarded the Provost's Teaching Award for Excellence in Graduate and Professional Education and the On Eagle's Wings Excellence in Teaching Award. Kim is the first Asian American woman and faculty of Korean descent at Candler. The title of Dr. Kim's presentation this evening is One Year After Atlanta, Race, Empire, and American Evangelicalism. Helen, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Chow. And thank you everyone who's here online as well as in person. And as Dr. Chow mentioned, I really do value the connection with students. And so um, we will have a chance, you know, I'm gonna talk about this later in September where I'm gonna have kind of a more open forum to talk about my book where it's kind of open to the public. Um, and that's going to be hosted by Candler Foundry and the Emory Department of Religion. Um, but I really did um, want to be able to connect with you all as students, um, especially, you know, going through seminary and being in THM as well as doctoral programs in addition to the master's programs. I know there's a kind of specific formation process that's happening in those spaces. And um, I'd just love to be able to connect with you all um, on that level, um, you know, as I also talk about my research. So um, really appreciate this time. Um, so yes, um, as um, Dr. Chow mentioned, today I'd like to talk to you about my new book, uh, Race for Revival, How Cold War South Korea Shaped the American Evangelical Empire. And I'm especially grateful to Dr. Chow, the director of the Center for Asian American Christianity, and also um, Dr. Uh, Bo Karen Lee, who when I was an exchange scholar at Princeton University um, in the religion department 2013, she really nurtured my studies. So 
um, just a big shout out also to Dr. Lee as well as Dr. Chow. And today, as I talk about the book, I wanna make a case for thinking about America's religious past through a trans-Pacific and Asian American lens. And this is the overall intervention that I seek to make as an American religious historian into my field. Um, and in this book, I focus specifically on modern evangelical America. And in my next two book projects, um, I'm continuing to use a similar lens, but with a focus specifically on Pentecostals and then on liberation theologians. So this is kind of a framework that I hope to continue to build um, not just in this book on modern evangelical America, but into other religious groups. Um, and I want to talk about why I think a trans-Pacific and Asian American lens matters for our contemporary moment, especially as we're witnessing uh, the resurgence of anti-Asian hate and what this might mean for stewarding our gifts as students, ministers, and scholars of Asian descent today in church and society. And Dr. Chow specifically mentioned, you know, is there a possibility to provide some kind of specifically kind of biblical reflection, kind of scriptural reflection, uh, reflection in addition to the history that I talk about? And so I, I usually don't combine the two. I usually kind of speak straight history and then, you know, in other spaces we'll do um, biblical reflection. But today I'm going to at the third or do two to three major sections of my talk. But the last section, I will turn it to kind of theological reflection, but specifically some reflection on scripture. So the first two sections will be mostly historical. And then the last uh, we'll talk about um, what I think this has to do with um, also some scriptural reflection. So let's um, first turn to the past, especially a moment that is largely forgotten and relatively unknown. On June 3rd, 1973, Billy Jung-hun Kim, Kim a South Korean minister with Baptist and Carolina, Carolina roots, just like Billy Graham, joined the white Southern evangelists at a wooden pulpit custom made for two. Billy Kim, just a few inches above five feet, mounted a wooden booster to match Billy Graham's towering height of over six feet. On this day, they preached to 1.1 million people, their largest crusade. Graham had gained global fame as a revivalist, an advisor to US presidents, and the leader of modern evangelical America. He attracted vast crowds and one might reasonably assume that Graham preached this, his largest crusade at a Southern football stadium or a Sunbelt megachurch. Yet it was in South Korea that Graham with the help of translation preached to 1.1 million people. Some of you all might be familiar with this historical moment. Others of you all may have never heard this before, but this is a moment, kind of a watershed moment for evangelical revivalism, both in the US and South Korean contexts. South Korea was this unique place where Graham preached to 1.1 million people. And my question to begin this talk today is why South Korea of all places? On this scorching hot June Sunday, the record-breaking crowd sat on the hot concrete with sheets of newspaper for cushioning as they waited Graham's sermon. 
the high point of that afternoon. Throngs of Korean men and women, young and old, as well as Korean and US soldiers gathered in Yeoido Plaza, a barren strip of land typically used for military training. And Billy Kim was Billy Graham's quote, good voice, without which he would have been quote, absolutely nothing in South Korea. He translated into Korean Graham's sermon, Love of God, based on John 15, 13. Quote, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The two men opened this revivalist apex in 20th century history with memories of the Korean War, the first hot war of the global Cold War, or as Grace Cho puts it, quote, the first and last conflict of the Cold War, whose beginning is uncertain and whose end has not yet arrived. The two Billies sacralized the Korean War, deeming it a costly but holy war, as they conflated the image of the U.S. soldier's blood sacrifice with Jesus's martyrdom on the cross. The two preachers concluded the crusade with an invitation to make a decision for Christ, to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior or renew a previous decision. That afternoon, 73,000 people rose from their seats, many solemnly with bowed heads, some weeping, and made a public decision for Christ. It was the largest group of converts and faith renewers in any crusade hosted by the Billy Graham Evangel Evangelistic Association or the BGEA since its 1950 founding. What did it mean that Graham held his largest crusade beyond US borders? Two other global evangelical nonprofits or parachurches shared center stage. Campus Crusade for Christ and World Vision. Why were World Vision, Graham's organization and Campus Crusade in particular present at this revivalistic apex? Was this the triumph of American evangelical empire or was it a showroom for local Korean Christianity? What role did US Cold War empire building in Asia play in this moment of trans-Pacific revival? In part, this revivalist apex signified what evangelicalism had become in the Cold War era, a white and male-led movement made by the global masses. It was also a movement that would stop at nothing for the sake of the world's conversion, even allying with authoritarians. Indeed, without the consent of South Korean President Park Jong-hee, an authoritarian leader, this crusade could not have been organized. Piety and politics intertwined, hardening evangelicalism on both sides of the Pacific into a religion of heart and hierarchy. For a more complete answer, one must suture two parallel and otherwise disconnected stories. And this is where really a trans-Pacific turn to American religious history is really significant. The first is of early 20th century modernists and liberals who believed the backward fundamentalist strain of Christianity in the US would fade away. They were wrong. Instead, a cadre of primarily white fundamentalists reformed themselves into a more culture-friendly new evangelical movement in the 1950s and 1960s. And then having gained public attention, they transformed themselves into mainstream evangelicalism in the 1970s. This is you know, a very familiar um, historiographic development 
that um, historians, you know, especially when they look at evangelicalism in America are going to be used to narrating the story in this way, kind of the rise of modern evangelical America. This is kind of the tradition in which the story is told. A Newsweek magazine declared 1976 to be the, quote, year of the evangelical. And Republican Ronald Reagan's election as president in 1980 reflected in part the rise of this once reticent evangelical subculture into mainstream power. And this is also going to be kind of a familiar narrative, you know, the rise of Reagan in 1980 and its connections to the GOP, kind of evangelical connections to the GOP really begin um, with 1980 Ronald Reagan. And so this is also going to be a narrative that's relatively familiar to the wider public. But what I wanna highlight is that the reemergence of evangelicalism in the United States, um, in terms of this very story that I've just mentioned here, the rise of Reagan, also the transformation of fundamentalism into new evangelicalism and the mainstream evangelicalism in the late 20th century. This particular narrative, which is so familiar to historians, also paralleled the growth of non-Western Christianity. And this is a story that is less familiar or relatively unknown or forgotten. This story of the reemergence of evangelicalism in the US parallel the growth of non-Western Christianity in general and the quote, explosion of Christianity in South Korea in particular. This is the second story that I interweave into my book and show how they are highly connected. And why I think it's so important to reimagine modern evangelical America's history through a trans-Pacific lens. Because when we take that kind of trans-Pacific lens, you see how this very US local or national story that seems so familiar to us actually was highly intertwined with the history of Asia and with the history of South Korea in particular. When the Korean War stumbled into an inconclusive armistice in 1953, North and South Korea remained divided. The North, the original hub of Korean Christianity soon espoused Jute ideology and the South Christianity. Between 1950 and 1980, South Korea's Christian population grew from less than 5% to 20% of the population. The nation was deemed a, quote, regional Protestant superpower. Now, in the 21st century, South Korea sends out more missionaries per capita than any other country in the world. And the Yoido Plaza of Crusade fame, which I opened up with, has been replaced by the Yoido Park or the Yoido Kongwon. Right, but it remains a landmark of revivalism. Um, Cho Yonggi or David Yonggi Cho, the founding pastor of the Yoido Full Gospel Church, the largest church in the world, houses his office in front of the park, not far from where the church stands today. Although he passed away last fall and they've since moved his office um, actually into a building closer to um, the main sanctuary which I visited again for research last November, December, but it's still very close to the Yoido Plaza. Historians have studied these parallel stories as independent narratives. So the parallel stories that I'm talking about are on the one hand, US evangelicals and then South Korean Protestants. This late 20th century of the rise of US evangelicalism and then the rise of South Korean Protestantism is often told as separate narratives, independent narratives. 
But in my work, I show how they were actually tightly intertwined. The BGEA, World Vision, and Campus Crusade, all evangelical parachurches, are best viewed as border crossing networks stretching, especially across the Pacific Ocean. Those connections across the Pacific were crucial for the construction of the BGEA, World Vision, and Campus Crusade, who absolutely cannot tell the story of their construction from the beginning to their eventual global success without the South Korean narrative. They allied themselves with similar movements in South Korea long before they became, quote, multinational corporations, as historian Darren Dojek puts it. The presence of all three of these organizations, along with a million people in Seoul, was a culmination of a trans-Pacific history with millions of participants spanning two continents and beyond. Since the outbreak of the Korean War, Cold War South Korea and the United States have been intertwined in a religious Cold War. This is language um, from kind of diplomatic historians like Andrew Preston. A religious Cold War against global communism. Matters of faith permeated the war as a political struggle for legitimacy and a global rivalry between divergent ideas of governance and Cold War America's battle against the Soviet Union, but that particular battle extended into Asia. So in spite of Harriet Truman's and Dwight D. Eisenhower's, both US presidents in mid 20th century, despite their vast political differences, Eisenhower shared Truman's belief that Cold War America had a divine mandate to save the world from, quote, the spiritual evil of atheistic communism. This is coming, this is language um, that's coming from the work of a diplomatic historian like Imboden, who's really thinking about the Cold War as a religious Cold War, right? That US presidents are using not only political language, but also religious language to talk, to conceive of the Cold War and not only against the Soviet Union, but also into Asia. Indeed, that religious Cold War extended into communist Asia, and it culminated in part at this trans-Pacific revivalistic apex that I opened up with today in my talk. With the two Billies, Billy Jong-un Kim and Billy Graham, World Vision and Campus Crusade at the helm. They sought to win a holy war through the Great Commission, the total evangelization of the world. Mapped onto the divine mandate, mapped onto that divine mandate was a Manichaean logic of good versus evil that created a trans-Pacific religious, racial, and political fault line, not only empowering the global rise of South Korean Christianity, as I mentioned, kind of this explosion of South Korean Christianity from less than 5% to 20% between 1950 to 1980, but also in part shaped a niche and dying white fundamentalist America which you know, in the 1920s, most historians, most political scientists, even theologians would have predicted that white fundamentalist America was going to go underground, had kind of lost the battle against modernists, right? And wouldn't ever see, uh, you know, you know, again, emerge as this public or even political presence into the mid or late 20th century. But we actually do see this reformation of white fundamentalist America into new evangelicalism, into mainstream evangelicalism. We see this ri rise of modern evangelical America. And what I also talk about as, a, as an empire, 
you know, this expansive understanding of U.S. evangelicalism, not only as a local or national formation, but a global formation, right? So these, these kind of stories are highly intertwined through the religious Cold War. A trans-Pacific historical lens reveals that the rise of modern evangelical America, as well as the explosion of South Korean Christianity, depended on America's religious Cold War in Asia. That's what, that's in part what caused these three organizations that we talked about, the BGEA, World Vision, Campus Crusade for Christ to intertwine so, so tightly, right? Such that we have to talk about how World Vision was created in 1950 during the Korean War in Korea. Its, its Korean origins are um, absolutely um, have to be discussed. And David Schwartz does talk about this in his book, um, Facing West. And I continue to build on that argument in the first chapter of my book, but also show how not only World Vision, but also Campus Crusade for Christ, the BGEA, absolutely depended on these trans-Pacific networks for their growth. In that sense, the, this book um, is really looking at using a trans-Pacific lens for the first time to think about US evangelical history, politics, and race. So all three are being intertwined in this project, um, Race for Revival. To that end, I connect a triad of previously self-contained conversations, right? So connecting modern ev American evangelicalism with Korean Christianity, and setting that to the backdrop of the Cold War in Asia. I show uh, by studying these three um, evangelical parachurches that um, their growth was spurred on in part by the global Cold War and that a vast group of mid 20th century white fundamentalists became evangelicals by converting, disputing, and allying with transnational South Korean Protestants, whom they viewed as racial others, anti-communist allies, and models in converting the world to an evangelical form of Christianity. And ultimately, I do show by the last chapter that when one follows this historical trail on both sides of the Pacific, an immense trans-Pacific canopy of evangelical conservatism also comes into view. So it's not until the 1980s and 1990s that the Christian right solidifies in both the US and South Korea, but the history of these three organizations between 1950 and 1980 describes the rise of a potent array of non-state actors who were, then became intertwined also with conservative politics. That may not be where they began, but by the 1980s, 1990s, their movements are starting to converge with these politics. So no single narrative can capture the full web of connections that converge to bring about large scale historical change, but the fabric of both South Korean Protestantism on the one hand and US evangelicalism, especially in the modern period, would have had a different texture and feel today were it not for the story that this particular book tells. And that's especially by foregrounding these kind of trans-Pacific connections um, forged through the crucible of war. So that is an overview of um, the book, um, Race for Revival. And I wanna, I wanna, you know, so feel free to 
you know, field any questions about kind of the shape of the book. But I want to move now into why I think this past is really important for the current moment. So let's turn to the current current moment and how this past informs, you know, kind of some of the real difficulties that we've been experiencing, um, especially these last couple of years amid the pandemic. I think that this historical backdrop from the Cold War period provides an important historical background to understand the contemporary resurgence of anti-Asian hate. This is certainly not how I began the project. I began the project like the seeds, as I talk about in the preface of the book, I, the seeds of this project began when I was in college. So that's almost 20 years ago. So um, I've been, you know, the questions have been percolating, you know, for a long time. Um, but as I was putting the finishing touches on the book last year, uh, before sending it out, the final manuscript um, to my editor, uh, when I was finishing the last touches, that's when I learned about the Atlanta spa shootings on March 16th, 2021. And obviously also just this whole, um, you know, what the work of Russell Jung and also Melissa Borja and others have been showing through Stop AAPI Hate, just because resurgence of anti-Asian violence um, in America amid the pandemic. And um, as you know, on that day of the Atlanta spa shootings, a white evangelical man murdered eight people, right? Including six women of Asian descent right here in the greater Atlanta region where I'm zooming in from. And this tragedy sent the Asian and Asian American community, as you know, into turmoil, as well as a stronger sense of solidarity. And my vision really began to blur between the shootings and the images of war that I had been steeped in as I completed my book. As I read news piece after news piece, I recalled images from the archives, including images of the star of the Southern Baptist Convention, Billy Graham, who first traveled to Asia amid the Korean War in 1952. So the story that I began to tell you in the beginning of this talk was from 1973, uh, Grand and his largest crusade, but the first time he ever traveled to Korea was in 1952 amid the Korean War. And um, this is, I, I talk about this image in the first chapter of my book. And I was reminded, you know, in thinking back to that image um, of Graham um, during the Korean War, that, you know, there, that there's a longer history here of white evangelical men's encounter with Asia, right? That we have to think about even what was happening with the Atlanta spa shootings in light of this longer history. Right, I was reminded that's not the first time we've seen you know, white evangelical men so intertwined with the lives of Asian people and trying to understand how they even first you know, began to imagine who Asian or Asian American people were. There's this longer history. We can't under, understand the intimate connections between white evangelical men and women of Asian descent without the history of US Cold War empire building in Asia. So my book is not about the Atlanta shootings, you know, it's not about the contemporary resurgence of anti-Asian hate, but it provides this larger backdrop of US encounter with Asia 
that absolutely is provide informing the present. Right, so as a historian, it's very difficult for me to look at what's going on today without this, this deeper history of US encounter with Asia, especially against the backdrop of Cold War empire building in Asia. In part, in part, this is, it's, it's not, I argue that it's not possible to understand um, the intertwining of, kind of American, you know, violence and um, against especially Asian people uh, without this history, because so many of the images um, that have been informing Americans and including kind of white evangelical men about who, you know, who Asian people are, um, Asian, who Asian women are, so much of that has been informed by the backdrop of war. And as I, as I mentioned in my introduction to my book, the making of modern evangelical America itself was so intertwined with the history of the US Cold War in Asia, including the, Cold, including the Cold, Korean War, the first hot war of the global Cold War. So I'm indebted to the work of scholars like Grant Wacker, who have published several books on Billy Graham, you know, but Wacker, in it, you know, Wacker was an early reader of my book. He read, you know, chapter four, you know, of my book very early on. But Wacker, in his work, has not studied the international career of a figure like Billy Graham, or kind of this trans-Pacific career of uh, modern evangelical American leaders uh, like Billy Graham. So as you know, no one was more influential in reviving the moniker evangelicalism in modern America than Graham, he was the star who helped transform the US image of backward white fundamentalists um, into mainstream evangelical America in the late 20th century, as I mentioned. But note that this is a tradition that he also then bequeathed to his son, Franklin Graham. It's also a religious movement of which the shooter of the Atlanta spa shootings was a part. And so, in taking a closer look at Graham's international career, I have found that US Cold War expansionism in Asia was crucially intertwined in the making of Graham's modern evangelical America, the very tradition and movement that the shooter of the, at the Atlanta spa shootings um, was a part and the tradition that also informed him that he had a quote, sex addiction. Right, so recall that the shooter was a member of Crab Apple First Baptist Church in Milton, Georgia. And when he confessed his crimes to Captain Jay Baker of the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office, he reported that he struggled with, quote, a sex addiction that, and that he targeted these spas as a, temp, quote, temptation he wanted to eliminate. He had previously sought out residential treatment at Hope Quest Group, a white-led evangelical treatment center in Ackworth, Georgia. And with the publication of books like Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, a New York Times bestseller, many of you may know this book, written by Kristen Dumay. Um, and I am um, excited that she's going to be on this virtual book panel that I mentioned in September, uh, where we're going to review my book. And also Thomas Seat, um, a doctoral student at PTS will also be on that virtual book panel. I'm excited that they'll get a chance to review my book. And um, as we know from this book, um, 
you know, so much of the discussion of evangelical America that Graham helped to create, um, so much of the discussion around this book has been about this critique of militant evangelical masculinity exemplified today in Trump's loyal white evangelical base. But as I've thought about this book and also okay, this resurgence of anti-Asian hate and even the Atlanta spa shootings, I just keep thinking about this Cold War history that I've introduced you all to, this Cold War history in Asia that linked modern evangelical America to Asian people. So I ask, you know, what, what about the people who were and are on the receiving end of white evangelical masculinity who encountered this cultural formation, not only through everyday inconveniences or through just culture, but also through real wars. I can't help but think about the tragedy of the Atlanta spa shootings as a restaging of and the ongoing legacies of the mass shootings and the mass casualties of the Cold War in Asia that taught Americans in general and white evangelical men in particular, that the bodies of Asian people in general, that the bodies of Asian women in particular were expendable. Expendable in this global Cold War against the state of communism, a war that was not only conceived um, in the mid you know, 20th century and into the late 20th century as not only a political war, but a war that many perceived as a religious war, a holy war against, against atheism. So as I mentioned um, in the introduction to my book, at mid 20th century, Eisenhower's Cold War America was dubbed God's country, right? Intensely devout with a religious revival across traditions and denominations. The reach of the survival was so crucial that I think we have to talk about, and often it's not written this way, it's often thought of Eisenhower's conception of revivalism and God's, you know, America's God's country, so conceived as kind of a local or national phenomenon. But it's really important that we think about those ideas in transnational and global contexts as well. Because this kind of concept of American revivalism was definitely global as it dovetailed with the Cold War expansionism that made no post-colonial apologies for intervention in non-US territories. As Christina Klein notes in her work, Cold War Orientalism, in the 1940s and 1950s, quote, hundreds of thousands of Americans flowed into Asia as soldiers, diplomats, foreign aid workers, missionaries. Never had American influence reached so far and so wide into Asia Pacific Asia and the Pacific than in the 1940s and 50s. This is really significant for US global history, right? US contact with Asia was never more forceful and never more expansive than in the 1940s and 50s. And this is why the story of the rise of modern evangelical America and the rise of um, the Cold War in Asia, and then also, as I talked about in the beginning, um, South Korean Christianity is so intertwined because U.S. global history um, tells us that U.S. contact with Asia had never been more expansive than in the 1940s and 50s. So we can't, we just can't talk about these kind of histories in separate, as separate narratives. Just as war bound together the United States and the Philippines, 
so too the United States and South Korea became permanently inseparable. Korea became central to the making of modern evangelical America because the Korean War triggered unprecedented movement across the Pacific, which also aligned with the evangelical impulse for movement to not only save US souls, but the whole world, right? So again, just this emphasis on the rise of modern evangelical America and its desire to save US souls we really can't think about um, conversion um, in modern, you know, as core to the project of modern evangelical America outside. It can't just be this local or national conversation. We have to be able to see that modern evangelical America wanted to save the whole world's soul, right? So though white Protestant missionaries had traveled to Korea since the late 19th century, uh, 20th century white fundamentalists, unlike their predecessors, followed U.S. military routes, right? This is unique to the mid-20th century context. White fundamentalists traveled to Korea for evangelistic and humanitarian reasons, and Koreans traveled to the U.S. as part of post-Korean War immigration. This is the second wave of Korean immigration to the U.S., which included especially Korean orphans, military brides, and students. Among the first to see the potential of these militarized roots of connection were also white fundamentalists like Grant. And I say white fundamentalists because in the 19th, that early 1950s period, we really don't have the language of calling a figure like Graham a, a neo, it's just beginning to emerge, the term neo-evangelical and then evangelical is just beginning to emerge, right? So just one month after Eisenhower's election to the presidency in 1952, and with Pentagon approval, Graham spent Christmas in Korea. This is the first time he ever goes to Asia, right? So the history that I mentioned in the very beginning with the 1973 crusade, right? The largest crusade ever that he ever preached has important roots um, in his travels to Korea during the Korean War. Um, on Christmas Eve, Graham traveled to the battlefront to preach to U.S. servicemen, an evening he said he would never forget. And while most military pulpits were barren, Marines adorned the pulpit that day with artwork. A U.S. Marine prepared a six-foot painting of Jesus, depicted as a meek white man with long flowing hair, wearing a white robe draped around his shoulders. And under a dark and ominous sky, the meek white Jesus washed over a tired and discouraged white Marine who, while holding his rifle, crouched down on the ground in front of a Korean-style house called the Kiwajib. Behind this large painting of the white Jesus and white Marine hung Southern flags from North, from North Carolina, Arkansas, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, foregrounding the U.S. South in this moment of white Southern Baptist preaching in Korean soil. So here we have a moment um, when Graham first encounters Korea where the white South and South Korea, white Jesus and the white Marine merge together in this preaching hour as it conjures up nostalgia for home, stoked you know, white Southern regional pride and knit together the triad of Jesus, soldier and evangelist. As Graham stood confidently at this pulpit, he breathed life into these lifeless material objects, serving as a trans-Pacific linchpin that fused together white Jesus, soldier, and evangelist. 
As Nadia Kim has shown us, Koreans have learned the American white over black racial hierarchy through mass media and military culture in the aftermath of World War II with the arrival of the US military in Korea. But we also see here that religion and specifically religious material culture played a crucial role as well. Yet the conservation of US racial hierarchies on war-torn Korean soil did not detract from Graham's revivalistic message, but only further boosted it, unfortunately. Graham declared in I Saw Your Sons at War, the Korean diary of Billy Graham, quote, never in my ministry have I preached with more liberty or power. The spirit of God seemed to fall on the meeting. Many of the, quote, big, strong, tough Marines were, quote, weeping unashamedly because of their, quote, sins and their need of a savior. One of the, quote, big Marines who had calloused hands from years of fighting gripped Graham's hand and thanked him with, quote, tears streaming down his face. Graham associated this Marine's spiritual awakening and emotional release with increased masculinity. Quote, I was proud of him and proud of every one of those men, the finest of American youth. Everyone was a rugged he-man. Everyone was a courageous, red-blooded American. Graham sanctified the U.S. Marines' militant masculinity in this racialized moment of white Southern Baptist preaching on Korean soil. Graham had understood the Korean War in particular and the Cold War in general, as I mentioned, as a holy war against communism, a theological and political sin, not unlike Eisenhower, who would expand Truman's belief that Cold War America had a divine mandate to save the world from, quote, the spiritual evil of atheist or communism. For the sake of God's holy cause, a faithful soldier, both a Christian soldier, might marshal all forms of power, be it muscular, white, or militaristic. America's revival as a Christian nation, as I show in my book, Race for a Revival, occurred through the Cold War embrace of non-communist Asia. And in the fire of that war, trans-Pacific racism also fueled revival. As scholars have shown, modern evangelical America came to power through a white supremacist process that depended on the subordination of an exclusion of Black Americans. But I also show in my book, and this is one of the sub-arguments of the project, um, that Koreans' racial erasure, integration, and model minoritization were also three key trans-Pacific racialized processes that propelled a niche and fledgling form of white fundamentalist America into the US evangelical empire. The South Korean martyr, student, and orphan were three trans-Pacific Christian figures through which the racialized politics of inequality between Cold War, South Korea, and the United States were mediated, empowering the whiteness that propelled the growth of the US evangelical empire. Mid 20th century white fundamentalists not only engaged in a race for a revival against global communism, but also positioned themselves as the race that held the mantle for revival through the racialized and mediating figures of the Korean martyr, student, and orphan. So in other words, these kinds of trans-Pacific racialized tropes that were forged through these trans-Pacific 
non-state networks that I talked about through the BGA World Vision Campus Crusade, those networks also had really important racialized dynamics that um, modern evangelical America depended upon to revive its tradition. And so when I think about um, the, the resurgence of anti-Asian hate in America today, and also, you know, really kind of coming to this really sharp moment um, with the Atlanta spa shootings, I can't help but think about this Cold War past. Did the shooter at the Atlanta spa shootings, for instance, think about expunging his quote, temptation as a holy war against sin, a cause that would render him pure in the eyes of God? Because if he did, then he was possibly subject to a religious belief rooted in this longer evangelical and American legacy that has sanctified, racialized, and militant masculinity as holy. If we wanna understand and unpack these events, we have to understand that these contemporary culture wars that we're seeing um, even today, right, um, have real roots in real wars that the US has waged including in Asia Pacific. These culture wars aren't just, you know, about, um, you know, what kind of, you know, these everyday interactions and these everyday debates about, you know, how families should be formed or how churches, you know, who should lead churches. The culture wars at the heart of modern evangelical America are also, have also been formed by these real histories of real wars, including in the Asia Pacific. We have to understand the multiple historical roots of this violence to forge a new future. And so this is, this is a way for me to talk about how um, the history that I tell in Race for Revival sets an important backdrop for understanding um, the anti-Asian violence um, in contemporary America that um, it's really important for us to not just think about it as kind of um, interpersonal interactions, one or even local kind of encounters or even national encounters, but we have to think about them in the context of actual global wars that um, America has waged in Asia Pacific. There's a way in which that past continues to reverberate into the present. So in concluding, I want to talk about, you know, where does this difficult past and present leave us, right? Um, I, you know, what do we do with this historical knowledge? What do we do with this past, right? In addition to debating this past, because I would love to hear your responses um, to this past that I have um, talked about today and how it's intertwined with the present, um, there's an important intellectual project to be done there in debating these ideas. Um, but there's also, you know, you read these paths, you get informed by these paths, and it's difficult to move on from them. You know, what do you do with, you know, these kind of darker dimensions of America's religious past? And, you know, how can it inform how we ought to steward our gifts as scholars, students, and ministers of Asian descent? You know, I want to just end with some reflections there because I think that the history that I've talked about today and the way that I've intertwined it with some of the present challenges, especially kind of the racial challenges, is that um, I think that one of the legacies of 
the Cold War kind of evangelical America past I've talked about, one of the legacies of it is that it has it has argued um, for the stripping away of kind of, of racial heritages. Right, there's a way in which the history that I've told you today has contemporary legacies into this argument that a good evangelical American has to leave their racial and ethnic heritages um, in order to become a member you know, of the movement of modern evangelical America. There's a way in which it's kind of bought into this argument of colorblindness. And I think it continues to not only inform um, evangelical, you know, white evangelical Americans, but also casts a long shadow on Asian and Asian American people. If you've encountered any of these organizations that I've talked about today, um, you will have encountered a theological argument that says that you, you know, that's often argued that you can't bring um, your racial ethnic heritage alongside of this kind of evangelical theological heritage. And I just want to say that, um, you know, when I think about this past, I think it's really important for us to return, you know, I have often returned to the scriptures of Apostle Paul, who declares in Galatians 3, 26, 29, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. And um, I don't have enough time to completely unpack this particular passage, but I take a lot of solace in the words of Apostle Paul, because I think that here we see a context in which the Galatians also, you know, these kind of in this ancient context also struggled with a context in which they were told that they had to leave behind their ethnic heritage in order to be a part of a community in Christ. And I think that this particular passage, um, you know, there were a group of teachers that began to dig into their insecurities and taught them that to be part of God's family, they had to change who they were. And um, these teachers persuaded them, you know, if you want to have a seat at our table, be like us, conform to our bodies, be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. And they were very eager to fit in and to manufacture the signs of outward, the outward signs of belonging to the family of God. But the apostle Paul, a Jew himself, really argued against this. And this is what I really love about the text of Galatians, is that he writes a really passionate letter arguing against these false teachers. And he writes, you know, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. He argues, he says, you know, he, Paul, he calls the Galatians to rest in their identity in Christ, to put down the knives they've used to mold their bodies to belong. And he argues that they don't have to work for their acceptance. They don't have to manufacture their identities, right? Simply by trusting that they do belong to Christ and that Christ belongs to them, he argues that they're heirs to an everlasting inheritance as children of God. 
right? And so this text, you know, um, some people would argue that, you know, it, it argues for colorblindness, but I think what we actually really see here in this text is that um, Apostle Paul argues that you can, bring, you can bring both your Jewish and your Gentile heritage, right? That he affirms that you are both um, Korean and in Christ, that you're both Asian American in Christ, right? With the mystery of Christ's life, death, and life after death, membership into the family of God open to both Jews and Gentiles with new standards and new marks of membership. And Paul sees that there are false teachers who are pressuring the Galatians to belong by denying them of their Gentile heritage. And this is what really gets him riled up. But the good news is that when Paul says there's no longer Jew or Gentile, he's not asking the Galatians to get rid of their heritage or their identities or their backgrounds. He's not calling us to deny our ancestries or deny our racialized experiences. Rather, he gives our heritages power by naming them, by seeing them, and not by remaining blind to them. He says, bring your Gentile heritage, and I will show how you also belong to the Jewish heritage, the children of God. A scholar, Sakar Wan, writes, if Paul is concerned with building the Galatians as a people of God along the line of the Jewish covenant, then this new people is reconfigured not by erasing ethnic and cultural differences, but by combining these differences into a hybrid existence. And I think that the history that I've told you today, what's so difficult about it is that it, it has consistently argued that these, these identities have to be separated. Sukar Wan continues, in other words, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, in, in other words, you are all one in Christ Jesus implies a new identity for the Galatian community that is a combination of both Jewish and Hellenistic traits. You are both, as I mentioned, Korean and in Christ. You're both Asian American and a child of God. Apostle Paul calls for our earthly and spiritual identities to coexist in a loving embrace. Paul invites us to be a community in Christ in all of our distinctions and diversity by imitating Christ's radical acceptance of us, not by forgetting all distinctions, but by radically embracing the uniqueness that we each bring to the table. And this is the main charge that I want to leave us with, the charge to radically embrace our uniqueness as scholars, ministers, students of Asian descent um, and as allies of the community. Ever since the beginning of the Jesus movement, there were people who wanted to change their earthly identities and then pressured others to change who they were to gain their spiritual inheritance. And I think that the story, the history that I've told you about is a history where a lot, you begin to see a lot of the processes of how that kind of deformation process happens. And it's a hard story to read. But I think that scripture does give us a lot of hope because as you read um, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he writes a letter of love, calling them to be all of who they are, to be holy Galatian so that they could be holy in Christ. And I wonder if God is also calling us as a community at Candler, at PTS, at seminaries across the country, 
um, is also calling us as a community to just that kind of radical acceptance, right? To celebrate all of who we are as scholars, ministers, students, and all of our distinctions, to never give up on that vision to be wholly Asian and Asian American as part of the journey of becoming all of who we are in Christ. The, the history that I've told you about, once you read the book, I encourage you to read the book and talk to me about it and all of that. It, there are parts of the history that are gonna be really, really difficult, right? Parts of the history that are really, really dark. But I think it's really important to continue to set our sights on constructing a new vision and to constructing new communities that um, reform that past. Right, and to recast a vision of what it really means to be kind of multicultural, multiracial Christian communities in America um, and around the world. So um, thank you so much. And I've probably taken more than enough time. So um, I'm happy to take any comments or questions that you have. Thanks so much. Dr. Kim, thank you so much for a powerful presentation that helps us to interrogate received histories of American evangelicalism by centering the history of U.S. involvement in the Pacific theater, and especially in Korea. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.